Well, again, good morning. Welcome to One Ancient Hope in person or online. Uh, if you are streaming and you know familiar, my name is Matt. I'm the interim pastor here. I would love to get to hear more from you and meet you. Did you know that uh, every time that you worship God, every time we are gathered together to worship God, it's actually a political act. It's political in the sense that it's forming a polis, a people. We're becoming one people under one baptism. And it's also political because we are shifting our allegiance from any type of political party or person onto Jesus. And that happens every time you worship. If you sort of evaluate most of the worship songs that you sing, they give praise, honor, glory, power, all to one person, which takes them off of another. The words that we just heard from the voice from heaven that speaks over Jesus at his baptism, um, they actually, they, they don't come out of nowhere. They're not just these words that the father speaks. This, that you are my son in whom I am well pleased, the beloved one. These are not just words out of nowhere. They come out of a combination of two Old Testament texts. They come from Psalm 2 and then Isaiah 42. And Psalm 2 in Israel's history, it's a, it's a coronation psalm. It's something that they'd pray and sing over when a king came into power. Uh, if you were a king in Israel, you had this divine office. You were a sort of stand-in for God's rule and reign. The quotation comes from Psalm 2, uh, particularly verse 7, but I'll read verse 6 before it. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And so Jesus' baptism, which is what we'll be talking about today, is a coronation whereby his sovereign kingship is declared by God the Father. But it's not just Psalm 2 that's hinted at in the text. It's also Isaiah 42. Here's 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And Isaiah 42, if you read that chapter, some of the section over there, it's about what's known as the suffering servant. This prophetic figure in the history of Israel who's going to save through suffering. So Isaiah 42, the first few verses, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You see, in Jesus' baptism, we're told the kind of king that he will be. We're told the way in which the sovereign savior wields his power. We're told that we will be saved not by the sword, 
but by the cross. This is how power is modeled in Jesus. How victory is possible in defeat. On Wednesday, our nation's capital was broken into after a group of protesters were riled up by our president. They were attempting to keep him in power. And the part of it that brought tears to my eyes was that Christian symbols were flying about on flags and on t-shirts. But it was not a Christian act. And I feel that I need to say that clearly. It did not display to the world the way Jesus models power through weakness. Jesus shows a suffering servant kind of kingship. And I've been talking with the elders, thinking back and forth, should I send a pastoral letter? I sent a draft to them. Very glad I did not send without talking to them because I would have regretted it. And I may still write one, but now there's also this fantastic article put out by Christianity Today that I will probably uh, send in the Facebook group to read. But I want you to know as well, I'm available to process what's going on in our country, to pray with you for our country. Um, And one of the things that I love about this church is that I know there are people on both sides, politically speaking. And there's space for you here. In fact, there's space because we get to celebrate one baptism. We confess that in the Nicene Creed. This is a political act, worshiping, but it's a political act that draws different types of people together as one. And baptism is meant to be this beautiful image of unity. So now on officially to our sermon, I just felt I needed to acknowledge what's going on in our country and in my own heart about that. Do you remember your baptism? Maybe you haven't been baptized, so your answer is obviously going to be no. I don't remember something that hasn't happened. Or maybe you were baptized as an infant. We are, after all, a Presbyterian church, so that may be the case for many of you. Maybe as a young child or a teenager or as an adult. Do you remember it? Do you have photos or a candle or a certificate? Maybe your parents told you stories. Did you cry? Was the water cold? Were you immersed, dunked underwater, or maybe sprinkled on or poured on? Here's a confession. This would not have been allowed had I grown up Presbyterian. I was baptized twice. I was baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church. My mom was Catholic. My dad wasn't. So while I was baptized in the Catholic Church, it really didn't have any effect on my upbringing because we didn't go to church. And then 16 years later, I had this encounter with God at a Baptist youth group. I sensed a call into ministry, and after graduating high school, I decided to go on to Bible college So I was accepted, and they sent me this packet. And it was sort of all the things, okay, now you've been accepted. This is what you have to do in order to actually go to the school. Uh, No drinking, no smoking, no sex. Okay, pretty standard Baptist stuff. Uh, You had to be baptized as an adult. 
Well, I hadn't. I was only baptized as, a, as an infant. So as an 18-year-old, I was baptized again. And again, this could be a problem in some traditions, but I was going to a Baptist church, so they celebrated this. The thing is, I don't really remember either of them. Not in any sacramental or, or sensual, sense-driven way, that is. I can't remember the feeling of the water. As an infant, of course, I can't remember what it was like. Was I sprinkled or poured on? Was I dunked? Was it cold? Was it lukewarm? And then when I was dunked, I can't remember, did I sort of stay under the water for a couple seconds, really uh, picturing what it was like to, to be dead and then resurrected? Or was it really quick? Did I bring a towel? Did I forget a towel? What did I say? I can't remember if it was the lead pastor or the youth pastor who baptized me. I can't remember my baptism, and I had two. Yet this is where much of the power of that sacrament lies, in remembering your baptism. And I believe this is what our text today is ultimately asking us, to remember your baptism. Do you remember your baptism? This is what the text is asking. But the good news is I also believe that it offers us a sort of how and also a why. Our text today, of course, is all about water. And it's loaded with imagery from Israel's story. There are layers of meaning that we will miss if we don't do a bit of history. So let's go back into Israel's history with water. We can begin with creation. And remember, I've talked about this before, but in the Old Testament worldview, water is actually the realm of chaos. It's dark. It's vast. It's unknown. It's dangerous. So when the original readers heard in the beginning of Genesis as we did in our Old Testament lesson today, that darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. They knew that the Spirit was hovering over watery chaos, of which, in the story, order emerges by the power of God's word. God speaks into creation a habitable world when God separates waters from the dry land. So water is uh, very important even from the very beginning. And then what happens? Humanity chooses darkness over light. They choose death over life. They choose hatred over love. And so God's flood destroys the whole world as the watery chaos erupts once more. Only Noah and his family are spared as they float above the flood waters in the ark. In 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 20 and 21, it tells us that these waters of chaos and destruction, they actually became saving waters to Noah and his family. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, says First Peter. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authority, 
and powers in submission to him. So of creation, we have the flood. And from the flood, we turn to the story of the Exodus. Israel is saved from slavery in Egypt. By what? By marching on dry land through the Red Sea. Only then to see those chaos waters roar back and destroy the Egyptians. Exodus 15 verses 1 and verse 5 says the floods covered them. They went down to the depth like a stone. And in these pivotal stories of Israel's history, the imagery of chaotic, drowning waters, they take on God's saving purposes. Leonard Vanderzee, he says, the drowning, destroying, chaotic waters become instruments for the deliverance of God's people. God saves Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea or saves Israel from Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea. And then from there, there is this critical period in the wilderness in Israel's history. And this is where Israel is meant to undergo this deep formation as the people of God. They're tasked with always remembering God's saving action in their lives. They're moving towards the promised land, overflowing with milk and honey. And then some decades later, they arrive at another body of water. They're parted the Red Sea into wilderness only to get to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River divides the wilderness from the promised land. It's this other body of of chaotic, death-signifying water. And of course, this is the body of water that Jesus is himself baptized in. And after Exodus, and even after arriving at the promised land, water continues to be important in the Israelite story. In fact, washing with water becomes a religious ritual as well as hygienic activity. Leviticus has many of these prescribed washings in it. And one of the more meaningful and symbolic is the ritual bath of the high priest on the great day of atonement. The high point of Israel's sacrificial rituals. The high priest of Israel, the only one allowed to enter into the holy of holies in the temple. The high priest was instructed to bathe his whole body in water before putting on the priestly vestments clothing for the day. And this was clearly a sign of his cleansing from sin in preparation for standing in the presence of the Holy One of Israel in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the temple. And this practice of ritual watching, it, de- it develops more and more in Israel's life. And then we get to the concept of a mikvah, which is still practiced by many Jews today. This mikvah is this, this ritualistic bathing. Um, it, it means, all that mikvah means in the Hebrew is a gathering of water. So taken back to creation as well, when God gathered the waters from the earth, separated them. And um, you see this again in Leviticus. It happened uh, 
Well, particularly when a woman would have her period, seven days later she would have to have this mikvah, this cleansing, to show that she was pure and clean again. But it exists today. Women before their wedding, Orthodox Jewish women, will do a mikvah. Uh, they'll go down into a, a bath and be cleansed, come up again. But it's not just for women. Um, in fact, anyone who converts to Judaism now does so by a mikvah, very similar to Christianity. And some devout Hasidic Jews. I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which was like, all these Hasidic Jews lived there as well. They would go to a mikvah bath before Sabbath, the Shabbat. And some of them even went every day before morning prayer. And according to Jewish teaching, the mikvah represents the mother's womb, which womb in the Hebrew is rachem. What's interesting is this word comes from the same root as the word for mercy, which is rachama. So immersing fully into the waters of the mikvah is like re-entering the womb, the place of mercy, of God's creative power. Emerging from the mikvah is like being born again. Immersion in a mikvah, it also represents in some senses death and resurrection, even for the faithful Jew. Because a person underwater, if you think about it, you stop breathing. So it's this um, little death-like state, like a person descending into the grave. And when you come back out of the water, you come back to life. So in creation, the flood, and the exodus, water is symbolic of chaos and even death. Yet in the rituals for purity and the mikvah, water becomes symbolic of life. So when John comes baptizing, he doesn't do it without any sort of context. Water isn't some new imagery or symbol that he has to all of a sudden fill or load with meaning and metaphor. It's already there. So remember your baptism. But why? Mark 1, 4 and 5. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now John, which we've talked about in the past, John is in the wilderness. And this is important because this is where the story of Israel as God's people really starts to take shape. They're freed, again, from slavery in Egypt, and they become God's people in the wilderness. The freshness of God's salvation is evident. <coughs> Excuse me. Losing my voice. Needed some water. Come on, little. Okay. Anyways, the freshness of God's salvation is evident. Their identity is as a liberated people. This is who they are. They're a delivered people. 
And in the wilderness, God's presence is revealed in these, these tangible ways, these in-your-face ways. He's a cloud, uh, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Impossible not to meet him. And God gives the revelation of the law, of the Ten Commandments chiseled in stone. They're given this very clear way of how to follow him. But the wilderness was also a place of judgment, right? The wayward hearts of the masses were revealed in the wilderness. The quickness to complain or to take things into your own hands, to make a god, to make an idol, these things became obvious in the wilderness. So the wilderness is very important in Israel's history. It's the beginning of it, really. Now, most would have expected a teacher or prophet to come in the temple, in the center of Jerusalem, but John comes in the wilderness. John is calling Israel back to that place of deep formation, the place where things are revealed, the glory and presence of God, but also the distorted, damaged nature of our own hearts. One commentary says, the biblical concept of repentance is deeply rooted in the wilderness tradition. In the earliest stratum of Old Testament prophecy, the summons to turn basically connotes a return to the original relationship with the Lord. This means a return to the beginning of God's history with his people, a return to the wilderness. And apparently, people sensed this need for cleansing and repentance and returning because in our text it says they go out to the wilderness in droves to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. They backtrack to the place where Israel had so many beginnings. And the call to repentance of John is a call to remember, to return to their beginning. Why remember? Because you forgot. That's essentially what John is saying to Israel. And if you get the chance to spend some time in the Old Testament, you'll see that this theme is found all over. Israel's told to remember all the time. They're given feasts and holy days so that they always remember their history as God's story. And you'll notice in the Old Testament, when Israel remembers, when they remember their story, they flourish as a people. And when they forget, injustice and idolatry rule the land. Remember. Remember your baptism. Okay, you might be wondering now especially if you were baptized as an infant, how do I remember something that I have no cognitive memory of? In fact, Matt, you shared about how you can hardly remember your second baptism as an 18-year-old. So how do we do this? You keep telling me, remember my baptism. Well, I don't remember it. What good is you telling me this? Last week, I preached on the incarnation of Jesus. 
on the theological doctrine that God becomes human completely. Fully God, yet fully man. And in this we learn that Jesus becomes the new Adam, the new human. He represents humanity. Literally, he represents humanity back to God the Father. In fact, this is part of the reason he gets baptized. It's not because he's sinful or needs to repent in the sense of turning away from something he's done. No, his, his turning, it does show how he sort of, he turns towards the Father. It displays for us his openness to the will and ways of God. When it comes to our humanity, Jesus was all in. He didn't remain at arm's length from any part or aspect of the human experience, especially the suffering part. So he gets baptized. He symbolically drowns in the waters of chaos that divide the wilderness from the promised land for us. And then he rises again to new life. Jesus represents humanity back to God, which means that for those who accept Christ's free gift of saving grace, when God the Father looks upon you, he sees Jesus. So remembering your baptism must include remembering his that's how you remember your baptism. In fact, listen to Paul in Romans 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ's baptism becomes ours. Mark 1, 9 to 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased before Jesus does anything of importance of substance, of value. <clears throat> he was affirmed as a son who is loved and whose very existence is pleasing to God. Nothing proved, nothing earned, only a state of belovedness tied solely to his existing in the world. This morning, know this, that these words spoken to Christ at his baptism are true of yours as well. 
This is what we must remember of our baptism. You are my child, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Baptism in all of its symbolism and richness, it says, return to your birth. When you were still wet from the womb, and remember that then, before you did a thing, when your prayers, you know what they were? They were nothing but infant cries, undiscernible, shrill. When your obedience was nothing but simply filling your lungs, gasping that first taste of oxygen as a baby. When you were helpless and fragile and small, even then you were a beloved son or daughter of God. When we let that be our starting place, our lives look drastically different. We don't need to posture or prove or convince or control. We don't need to earn or be more educated. We are simply beloved. You're not defined by your success or your lack of it. Not by your bank account. Not by relationships or what others think of you or say of you or tweet about you or post about you. There is a voice from heaven speaking affirmation over you. Will you listen? The reason we tell stories is, of course, because stories can communicate something that prose alone cannot. Music can communicate truths that words without melody cannot. The reason we have sacraments is because Jesus, the human fleshly material one, He knows that the material elements of water, of bread, of wine, these elements can communicate something to us that words alone cannot. All my communicating to you this morning falls short of what the water on your skin can communicate. So if you've never been baptized and you find this whole death-to-life thing compelling, I encourage you to reach out to me or one of the elders at the the church. We'd love to figure out a way to get you baptized. And if you have been baptized, remember your baptism. And I don't just mean remember it with words or thoughts or ideas. I mean, take a bath. Sprinkle some water on your face. When it's a little warmer, go outside without an umbrella the next time it rains. 
There's a truth in baptism that can only be communicated to you by your senses. There's a truth about your belovedness, about the spirit hovering over you, creating something new, like the spirit hovered over creation in the beginning that can only be communicated by the experience of it. So remember it in full. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thankful, God, that you come to us. And you don't just come to us as a word, but as word made flesh. You know us, Lord. You know what it means to be human. You know the makeup of our particles. Lord, you know every aspect of us. And so we pray, God, this morning that in our humanity, we might be reminded of the truth of our baptisms, that you call us beloved. May we live and move and breathe in that truth, Lord. In your name, amen.